You're listening to the Elmira Radio Hour, a podcast that opens the door to culture and news you definitely missed this week. We're your hosts, Nina Bhattacharya and Sheila Lal. This week, Sheila and I catch up about her time in Bangalore, discuss e-governance and its intersection with internet and public policy more broadly, non-traditional ways of learning, collaboration without competition, and navigating feedback. I apologize in advance that my audio towards the end gets really, really staticky. You might hear some crackly sounds that we weren't able to remove during editing. With that, on to the show. The reason that we've been absent is I was based in Bangalore for the last month, and it's not that Bangalore doesn't have internet as much as where I was living did not have internet, which I was told by my faculty advisor was a cultural experience, which was incorrect because India has internet. Anyway, um, so the last quarter of the Ross MBA experience of your first uh, during your first year is being sent to do a short-term consulting quote-unquote project. So there are 84 projects throughout mm-hmm. the world. You rank 15 of them. Um, I got placed with my second choice, which was a very nebulous idea of like e-governance in India. And I was like, okay, this mirrors, this pairs mm-hmm. all of the things I like. So government, thinking about it in a creative or innovative way, and then being in India. Excuse me as I drink some garbage chai. So, um, so get to India, there's four of us and uh, in this group, and we're working in a civic technology company called eGovernments Foundation. And the purpose of this organization is to build technology platforms. So they're working on an open source uh, piece of technology that enables citizens to engage with um, local, state, and central governments to help uh, engage in very basic bureaucratic measures. So Let's say that you are walking down the street in in uh, Hyderabad in Thalanganam, and you see that there's a big pothole that wasn't there before. With the app, like with a, a version of this platform made into an app, you can report this to your local body, to the Hyderabad government, and it goes to the right person. And you get to see in real time when that ticket is open and closed and completed. Same with like street uh, on or non-working streetlights or stray animals or uh, leftover garbage, like stuff like that or garbage that wasn't picked up. Is the idea that, you know, with the app and having a specific ticket that's perhaps visible Mm -hmm. to multiple people that there's an element of record keeping and transparency? Is that kind of what it Yeah. So not only does it give a sense of engagement and uh, like trust, on the citizen side, but on the government side or staffer side, it helps them, it helps um, create a sense of purpose and worth. Like, oh, we know what we're doing. We know what responsibilities are tasked to us. They're, they've seen this massive increase in productivity uh, and like employee satisfaction in the entire state of Andhra Pradesh, where it has been launched through the Bora Seva app. 
it helps create a a process to uh, acquire property taxes on properties that haven't been claimed. So if you're able to tag different parcels to people, you can check and see if they pay their property taxes, creating revenue streams or really solidifying revenue streams that haven't been there before. It allows people to pay their utilities a lot more quickly and it helps the state manage its assets, which looks primarily like state employee benefits, pensions, salaries, etc. And so it has saved the state of Andhra Pradesh a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So I can anticipate like potential critiques of the platform having to do with just how different governance structures yep. in India operate. And so I'm sure corruption is probably like the number one question or critique that the organization and the platform receives. So how, how, um, how did you see it interface with this mm-hmm. kind of nebulous you know, accusation of corruption, which is a problem in different parts of India, of course. So actually, that corruption wasn't the biggest complaint. The biggest complaint with the app itself was that the tickets weren't closed fast enough. But that's not the problem of the application. It's the problem of the government. So the anger or the, mm. the frustration, while valid, completely valid, was misplaced. And um, I think there's still this uh, collectively and globally education around the usefulness of an application or just how far it can go to understand really that there's mm-hmm. still user-centered work and that people really have to be that last smile in all operations on an application. Um, in terms of corruption, like Acumen did a study on Poraseva and the conversations we've had internally, the corruption bit hasn't been a part of the complaints or any of the user feedback. Like, what was it like to be living so in Bangalore? Easy. Bangalore is like the Bangkok of India, where it's been redeveloped or reimagined for an outsider's gaze. It's for people who come in, maybe transient, or there for 10 years max and then leave, which is a long time in the quote-unquote expat world, but uh, isn't really that long for India. And uh, mm-hmm. it's also for people throughout India who come through as opposed to like staying here for good. That's how I felt in Bangkok, at least, as that it was very transient, but also metropolitan and so melt, like melting pot that there wasn't a strong sense of what Bangkok was outside of that. And same with Bangalore, like the idea of the southern, like Hindu, um, like kind of hilly, like hill station vibe that used to be there isn't really there anymore. And it doesn't feel like any other part of India. It's aggressively easy to live there. Besides the traffic, like traffic is the only problem. Was it a city you see yourself going back to for um, that reason? I, yeah. Or is that was that more like a turnoff? Like I think for could... me it was kind. It was just confusing because I've never really lived in a place that mm-hmm. was that easy. And I mm-hmm. I went to mm-hmm. Hyderabad for a weekend to see my family, and that was still as like ridiculous as it usually is. And so I don't know if Bangalore is. Uh, is symptomatic of the type of ethos that Indian cities are inhabiting now, because it's been four years since I was last in one, or if it's still its own anomalous city. Right. And to be fair, last time you were in India for an extended period mm-hmm. of time, you were in Kolkata, which is just like... Yeah, exactly. Talk about anomaly. It's only. Yeah. And it was also before this massive switch to digital infrastructure, mm-hmm. which is changing a lot of how uh, people engage with their cities. Yep. Cool. So, yeah, yeah. 
So I really enjoyed being there. I really enjoyed learning about, again, the digital infrastructure piece, what other countries are doing with e-governance. Like Estonia is a really fascinating Hmm. case study on this. Why is that? Uh, They're... Um, they have really invested in blockchain technology as part of their basic governance structures. Mm. And because they're like physically a very small country, they're trying to get more tax revenue by having e-citizens. So people who have like either business interests or will pay into their tax base can become citizens of Estonia. Um, there's like other interesting stuff going on with their digital security uh, and how they're able to maintain digital processes through bureaucracy. Um, yeah, and like Argentina has some interesting stuff. Brazil has interesting stuff. Uh, the U.S. is like very woefully behind. I'm not surprised. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to think of what else I was really struck by. I guess like just all the conversations around integrating different digital possibilities into a handful of platforms because open source is the way that Indian technology companies are going. So how do you ensure that your platform is the one that everybody adapts mm-hmm. and then can build off of, and then thinking about um, becoming financially sustainable or profitable on top of that is another interesting strategy or uh, vision question. Like based on what you just said, I'm, I'm thinking about how different like internet structures, electronic and digital platforms evolved in the United States and evolved in a really proprietary way. Like if you're thinking about electronic health records, for example, and Mm -hmm. just how Epic has such a stronghold on how people adapt and use their platform and how Mm -hmm. just various systems don't even talk to each other because of those kind of, in addition to the privacy and ethical questions, of course, but like also the layer of like private sector and proprietary software and that you're then looking at a con- like other country contexts where there's a moment where you have a you, you you have a choice you can make a political choice of how you start developing your software and is it going to be on a proprietary scheme or is it going to be more uh, built on the principles of mm-hmm. um, like open source open access like whatever whatever the specific digital principles you hold. It makes me think, wonder, like, who's in the Indian ecosystem right now, like, thinking through the implications or consequences of each of these different policy decisions. And So uh, two things, one with the electronic healthcare health records, apparently when the ACA was being crafted, there wasn't, there was like some incentive for people to switch over to digital, but no regulation or no call for regulatory action that would require all of the systems to talk to each other oh yeah Yeah. interoperability was such a huge thing like in the previous lifetime of work when I was in DC it was around um, an initiative from the agency for healthcare quality or healthcare research and quality or ARC Mm -hmm. Um, and they had a pool of funds to help facilitate people hopefully people to talk to each other about what was working and not working. And it was very difficult for people. I mean, like, that's what I learned from being in that environment was that like people really didn't want to share lessons learned and getting people to talk about where they failed in particular was, is, is, and was very challenging, especially if you're an academic and there's like 
publication issues at stake. Also, if you're in the private sector, then there's like investments, investors at stake. So, yeah, I mean, mm. that's really uh, that's really frustrating to that there are active disincentives to making things better with collective knowledge. Um, but then the second thing, when you were talking about the t- people who are kind of curating the policy space around digital infrastructure and privacy, uh, the one of the three Bangalore map groups was working on Aadhaar and had more conversations with people who were opposed to it, who had were in, in, uh, were a pretty important and like uh, act, big actors in curating it. One of the guys who was the one of the foundational architects of Aadhaar helped founded eGovernments Foundation a long time ago. So mm-hmm. there is a bigger question around what was the intent, both ethically and through engineering, like uh, systems engineering, and then how do you reconcile that with uh, active use and application? And then even beyond that, if something's optional for buy-in, why is it that we're accepting that all these different other platforms, private platforms or banking platforms are requiring other to log in? So it's like, it's not really optional. It's like, it's an inherent tension. Mm -hmm. And it's like, then who has access? Well, then it becomes a question of like, who? Yeah. Who does this impact? Who doesn't this impact? Who doesn't have access? Mm -hmm. Who, for whom is it actually optional? Exactly. And uh, so my friends who are working on that have had a lot of really interesting conversations and realized that even in the four weeks they were in India and like we're tasked solely with understanding this, there's so many massive knowledge gaps. How can other people who don't have access truly understand the breadth and depth of what's going on? So their project outcomes are really going to focus on developing the foundations for people to have more factually based conversations around Adar as opposed to the uh, the qualitative conversations that come up like oh I heard about this one person who had like anecdotal evidence or oh you mean the, whatsapp text message threads that and like the one-off <laughs> stories you'll see <laughs> yeah, about, yeah, yeah yeah all that stuff so there's that's what their deliverable or their end project is going to be around and I'm really interested to understand how that ha- like pushes the conversation in a more productive manner if it does yeah, and also ways with education and facilitating conversation that aren't necessarily um, literacy-based. Exactly. really proud of how much I pay attention to the work you've done. Um, <laughs> as part of my work stream in my project, it was looking at how program managers are able to translate their knowledge as trainers to the end users, so like government users. Mm-hmm. And my biggest recommendation was do a pedagogy review, which is something I'm going to have to do for the our final mm-hmm. deliverable, but understand who are your government workers, like what could their potential tension points be 
And how do you either mitigate or alleviate those tension points with certain types of curriculum development? Yay! And I especially, oh my God. yeah, like, and I like highlighted that you don't really necessarily need words on PowerPoints that you can have diagrams and that you should have handouts or like, ta- like physical takeaways for each participant that has no language on there. So that way it doesn't mm-hmm. anchor you to a language you might not feel comfortable with. And it gives you mm-hmm. space to write in your own language. Yay. That's yeah. awesome. I haven't that's paid so attention. Good. Yeah. That's so good. That's mm-hmm. so good. And oh. uh, the guy who was uh, our point of contact for the training work stream was like, yeah, yeah, that's really good. And I was like, what up? Free Harvard yeah. education. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, you witnessed this probably in your work, but, and in a lot of the reports I have to read in my job on a day-to-day basis, like a lot of it emphasizes get like training health professionals or training community health workers or training policymakers or tra- like giving tools to educators. But like, what does, um, you, you know, training uh, ends up being a very vague it's, it ends up being like it's the right thing to suggest oftentimes, um, but like the how takes a lot more work than people anticipate mm-hmm. to like operationalize it. I know that you've been working on big projects. How are those going? Are you finished with stuff? I feel like last time we spoke, uh, Sue had a really big either presentation or mm. speech to give. Yeah, I mean, this whole, the past month and a half has been, like, it's been a bit of a blur. Um, It's a lot of um, planting the seeds for future, future things to come. Like, I put in my first grant at work, which was, like, kind of a cool experience. And it was for, yay! That's awesome! Yeah, so... It's to, to fund, like, innovative teaching and, teaching and learning, and it would be a project around bringing together graduate students from different disciplines at the incubator where I work um, to have them co-create non-traditional curriculum um, on topics that are cross-cutting. So things like urbanization and globalization are cross-cutting themes, and so what happens when you bring in someone from the school of ed, the design school and the school of public health and have them, because each person's coming from a different framework of thinking, right? So the way they interact with each other and then decide like, okay, what is the curriculum I'm going to develop to teach these ideas? Um, it's going to be very different than if it's just a group of public health students, just a group of B B school students or things like that. That's really neat. Um, as I've been working on applying to internships still, that process is, just very odd to describe to other people because most B-School students do their recruiting while we're in the throes of your coursework and like in the fall right in the fall and in the winter and it's like these companies come to you but for me a lot of those companies weren't particularly they they just didn't offer things that I was interested in which is fine Mm -hmm. so I've been doing a lot of off-campus stuff and so today I was uh, I had a writing prompt for a foundation internship and they asked, like, what would you do for this program's uh, net? Like, what frameworks would you develop to assess mm-hmm. whether or not this part of the program should find an affiliate network, period? And so I had to develop my own framework mm-hmm. and then utilize that framework to analyze a, a network that they should use. Oh, that's what those were the sketches that you were in, like popping up in your Insta stories. Yeah, I was trying to. I was reading through 
um, other frameworks, like real academic frameworks and trying to figure out what it was saying in a way that I could easily rearticulate out to somebody who doesn't necessarily have the paper in front of them. But it was so enriching, even if I don't get an inter- an interview or like an offer, it was so worthwhile for me to spend a ridiculous amount of time really thinking about how one strategically synthesizes information mm-hmm. without boxing you in. Value chain analysis doesn't have to, excuse me, doesn't have to only be about profit generation, but it should be about thinking about the linkages. Yeah. The beginning to end and what are the yeah, breaks yeah, yeah. and how do, what is your value proposition as an organization or as a service or good? And where does, what is its purpose in that value chain? Is it mm-hmm. to alleviate stress? Is it to heighten positive experiences? Mm-hmm. Is it whatever? And figuring out how, where you can insert yourself. And then adding to that is the co-creation idea where it needs to be a two-way street within a partnership. Mm-hmm. And how do you tap into that without being patronizing, without trying to recreate the wheel, without like an ego for, mm-hmm. for lack mm-hmm. of a better word. And then I got to introduce concepts around clusters and uh, like smart strategy and, or, and there was another one, I can't, uh, invent, something around uh, inventory, I think I can't remember it right now. And it's just so empowering to think about how you frame real, real shit for, again, lack of a better phrase, through the lens of people who make powerful decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like I got to utilize what I care about, which is reproductive justice as a general political lens, but used that as the overarching lens through which I developed this framework for this foundation. And like, I made that very clear in Mm -hmm. my write up. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's like exactly the kind of thing that gets me really excited is like, how do you use a specific topic as an entry point to thinking about this broader question, which is exactly what you were exploring Mm -hmm. and how it becomes not necessarily, again, you were saying profit. Yeah. Right. But like you could say like product or like anything, right. It's, it's about the process. Like what is the specific like zhuzh or interaction or magic or any that happens when like, for example, like we are recording with each other. Mm -hmm. Would this dynamic exist if two other random people were recording each, with each other maybe maybe not probably not because it's like a specific interaction of Mm -hmm. what is a sheila and what is a nina Mm -hmm. and then there's like some transmission of co-creation that's like you know what i'm saying like it's about the 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 act of recording the process of Mm -hmm. recording the process of seeing each other while we record and like also knowing how each other inhabits ourselves because of just being friends Um, it's like how do you invest in a partnership like this is what I don't like big picture don't understand about mergers and acquisitions like how do two entities decide they're going to work together when Mm. they haven't laid the groundwork for organizational restructuring or culture fit yeah because that merging can go really haywire it's like only 30 something percent of M&A's are successful emanate merging and mergers and acquisitions okay okay yeah yeah (laughs) but it's like a basic thing like you don't propose a collaboration with someone until you get to know them like from like if you're thinking at a super micro level Mm -hmm. like or like people don't different like community organizing groups don't work with each other until there's like actual human bridge or connection to like work across those silos exactly 
So what you're thinking about is exactly what we're thinking about. Everything's connected. Yeah. Everything's connected. A quick excerpt. You know you always can. Just because it has to do with mushrooms. Um, (laughs) It is from a book called Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown. Okay. And it's dedicated to the memory of Grace Lee Boggs, who was Adrienne Marie Brown's, like, mentor, kind of teacher. Anyway, so that's just kind of the stamp of approval. I know you... uh, My favorite... Okay. One of my favorite questions today is, how do we turn our collective full-bodied intelligence towards collaboration if that is the way we will survive? My favorite life forms right now are dandelions and mushrooms. The resilience in these structures, which we think of as weeds and fungi, the incomprehensible scale, the clarity of identity, excites me. I love to see the way mushrooms can take substances we think of as toxic and process them as food, or that dandelions spread not only themselves, but their community structure, manifesting their essential qualities, which include healing and detoxifying the human body, to proliferate and thrive in a new environment. The resilience of these life forms is that they evolve while maintaining core practices that ensure their survival. A mushroom is is a toxin transformer. A dandelion is a community of healers wanting to spread. What are we as humans? What is our function in the universe? I'm going to just continue reading a little bit more, then I'll stop. One thing I have observed, when we're engaged in acts of love, we humans are at our best and most resilient. The love and romance that makes us want to be better people, the love of children that makes us change our whole lives to meet their needs, the love of family that makes us drop everything to take care of them, the love of community that makes us work tirelessly with broken hearts. Perhaps human's core function is love. Love leads us to observe in a much deeper way than any other emotion. Moving forward a little bit. If love were the central practice of a new generation of organizers and spiritual leaders, it would have a massive impact on what was considered organizing. If the goal was to increase the love rather than winning or dominating a constant opponent, I think we could actually imagine liberation from constant oppression. We would suddenly be seeing everything we do, everyone we meet, not through the tactical eyes of war, but through the eyes of love. We would see that there's no such thing as a blank canvas, an empty land, or a new idea. But everywhere there is complex, ancient, fertile ground full of potential. We would organize with the perspective that there's wisdom and experience and amazing story in the communities we love. And instead of starting up new ideas slash organizations all the time, We would want to listen, support, collaborate, merge, and grow through fusion, not competition. Anyway, sorry, that like little, especially that that last little bit. That that makes me feel so many things. So I read uh, The Power, which is a young adult book and really does address this idea. Oh, wait, pause. Is The Power the one where the women have the power to electrocute people? 
Okay, and then the ethical mm-hmm. implications mm-hmm. when women alone have this power? It it sort of does. It doesn't uh, go all the way with okay. the ethics of it. It's really, it's a little bit less nuanced than that, okay. but I didn't mind it really. Um, instead, this idea of collective organizing and power through love is something that it starts as a subplot and becomes a main plot. I found it to be really thought-provoking around positive religious organizing, which we see at a smaller scale, but not at the same levels that we see very mainstream religion as just being complacent. But there was another bit to what you're saying that, and I can't remember which part it was, but it. I also finished reading Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde and like highlighted a lot of quotes from there. But thinking more concretely around difficult conversations that should hopefully bring people together as opposed to maintaining silos and that we don't need to recreate the wheel. We don't need to have our own separate entities moving forward or trying to progress an agenda that if we again listen to each other, we don't have to weaken our individual efforts by spreading across resources. Instead, we can have a one stronger collective that does things better. Sister Outsider like just killed me. Did you did you find any of that reading influenced um, my- how you were then thinking about I call it the Sheila Manifesto in my head, but the project you were working on this evening? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, but instead um, the two main essays that really stuck with me because they were truly new ideas were uh, the uses of the erotic and sexism in American mm-hmm. disease and blackface. And the uses of the erotic, I think you would appreciate this. The way that I was thinking or constructing these ideas in my head was around the idea of Shakti and that eroticism isn't just sexual. It is internalized power and that is we should be able to feel it in everything mm-hmm. that we do. That it isn't, I mean, the way that Audre Lorde discusses it, yes, it is more feminine, but I don't believe it is gender specific. I think that it is for everybody and it's how you tap into the idea of feminine and masculine within one, within oneself and present that in a mm-hmm. way that mm-hmm. uplifts everybody. Yeah. I'm not religious, but that's really what it read like to me. And just really affirmed that to be your full self is to show your passion in everything that you do. And if you don't have that idea of passion or idea of self, then you one needs to really invest in unpacking who you are. And if you can't find anything, it should be a massive red flag or like signal that reading or inviting art and culture or like other people's thoughts can help you it's figure out where your either, values right? lie. Where do you no, feel like you no, are in it's not. this process of learning and unlearning mm-hmm. about yourself? I feel like I'm perpetually in process. I don't want to feel complacent in my own self-education and development. That being said, when I look at the work that I've done on myself and then look at some of my peers or people my age, it it's hard to maintain like a level mm-hmm. of humility around it. Uh, and say like, okay, I still have all this learning I need to do and all this listening I need to do because uh, the feedback I get from the folks around me is, oh, you seem to know yourself so well, which is like, I don't feel like where I'm at should be something to aspire to. I feel like it should be the bare minimum that if I want to see myself in a position of power influence that 
I should have a sense of self and I should have a understanding of where my values, where, how they'll intersect we with the work. Agree. We'll do like a hard agree. <laughs> a very, 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 very hard agree. I mean, it's, I mean, I feel like graduate school is developing oneself, but in a very technical sense, particularly for master's programs beyond the superficial sense, there's not a ton of opportunity to think about feelings and reactions and space to let things breathe. Like people are, I mean, you're in mm-hmm. it right now. Like people are constantly yeah. overworked, yeah. burnt out, have a lot on their plate, like receiving a lot of signals from 10 different directions, worrying about the future that it makes it so dif- difficult to um, like sit with the present and kind of let it unfold or breathe in the way it needs to mm-hmm. for that kind of deeper, that deeper self-reflection. It, 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 it makes me think of like when we're developing like lesson plans and things at, at work, like the one advice Sue always has for us is most of you guys are trying to do too much. And then like the whatever limited set amount of time you're planning for this class instead of like three things in one hour, like focus on one thing you want people to walk away Mm -hmm. with in that hour and let it sit. Cause it takes like, it takes time. If you want people to internalize something, it takes time. We don't allow each other to have time. Yeah. The emphasis or premium put on production and staying busy doesn't help anybody in the end anyways. And so how do you unlearn that? Yeah, I find that a lot of times when people ask how I've been or what I've been up to, the answer is like, oh, I've been busy. It's sort of like the word interesting. It doesn't actually connote anything. The word interesting doesn't actually connote a a particular quality. One, probably because it's overused. Two, it's it's a passive way of getting at an actual adjective you want to use. Is it interesting or is it infuriating? Like, does it make you upset or does it make you happy? Like, interesting sits somewhere, like, not getting to the point. Being busy is similarly. And then, like, the moments where I do catch myself saying that, I'm like, okay, what the fuck do I actually say? Like, now that I've, like, had this (laughs) moment of alertness where I'm like, okay, I can't say busy because that's non-informative. But I haven't quite come up Mm -hmm. with a good response after that. But, uh... That's part of, again, like that's part of like the self-development. But how do I communicate more effectively and in a way that brings people in? So going back to co-creation, how do I get people to buy in to who I am, even in a 30-second interaction? Yay, business school. I've been trying to practice more intentional listening with people around me. My mom was visiting mm-hmm. over the weekend, which is sort of rare. And so it was really special. But even previously to her visit, I was working on a long shot book proposal for a long shot writing retreat. But it got me to start working on a project about my family's history. I, you know this because you've read the f- shitty first draft. Um, it was not shitty but but, I did read the first version but the process of actually writing something that is mostly nonfiction, but part ethnography Mm -hmm. part imagined history meant that it was a nice practice in forcing myself to be quiet when 
having conversations with my mom mm-hmm. or my aunts. And just rather than interrupting with the question to let them say everything. Mm-hmm. Or if there was a moment where it, it sort of lapsed into silence. To let the silence stay. Mm-hmm. And then like because something else emerged from that silence. After. Yeah. I think what struck me of what you were saying earlier was a lot of this has to do with putting aside one's ego in the process and it's hard to embody humility yeah because our tendency is to want to say something rather than be quiet and it doesn't help that media enforces this like sort of cycle of hot takes mm-hmm. i don't know that was like a kind of a very loosely threaded like they're all interlinked thoughts but like there's not a specific conclusion that came from it but I, I the act the act of writing that was an act of listening to someone else mm-hmm. but also then listening to myself by listening to someone else which is sort of it's a, that weird the, the process mm-hmm. it's it goes back to the process not product yeah product and like thing. how do you iterate in a way that is still centered and respectful of the original intent Mm-hmm. Oh, I meant to add mm-hmm. also that that process of writing and then sharing and then this idea of listening also has to apply to receiving feedback, which is something I wanted to talk about with you mm-hmm. because uh, it was felt was very vulnerable to share like something that I had written, which I knew wasn't in a final form at the time with, you know, even people that I care, like I know who are in my court, mm-hmm. who have my back and who care about me. And then being able to like be there to receive feedback, you know, and listen, it's really, really hard. Like it's very vulnerable. I don't know, like what are your experiences when you've been in situations that you've had to receive feedback? Like how do you find yourself reacting? I think immediately when we're talking about writing feedback, um, in undergrad it took So I couldn't receive feedback. It was nearly impossible for me to feel comfortable integrating that feedback into my work. Um, Like when I was home over winter break, I saw a paper I wrote like six years earlier and finally, or seven years earlier, and finally integrated those comments into the paper because I felt more comfortable with my flaws or my not completely developed skill sets and was like, fine, I'm going to lit, I'm going to read this, integrate it or like internalize it and then integrate it in a way I think it's important, but it is something that I know I need to work on and learn to accept the stress or anxiety of being vulnerable in front of professional colleagues as opposed to friends, because there's always love with friends. It is people you choose to be in your life. Well, professionally that is forced upon you so how do you learn to develop love and trust in that in that space feedback is such a double-edged sword in that if you're too you know if you're too passive like the message may not come across to the other person but if you're too blunt at the same time it um it can make people hurt right so like one walking that fine line between those things, particularly in a professional workplace, is, is super hard. And particularly when it's a lot of women, I find. Like I've worked in mostly 
uh, women-dominated environments. And I think just the product of everyone being socialized the way they are, it's very difficult for women to be straightforward with mm -hmm. each other and give feedback to yeah. each other. Because there, there's two avenues that I see in, like, you know, people get, they're angry, they get defensive, mm -hmm. or, like, they get mm -hmm. sad as a personal blow to one's mm -hmm. self-esteem. Oftentimes, like, these examples of resiliency and examples of collaboration that I admire come from women building each other, women, women identified, like, non-binary, like, building collectives and structures that work for them and for each other but at the same time being able to talk honestly about it in a non-friend context like with the world outside of one's chosen family and loved ones is so hard for people who are women you bring up this really interesting point real part of developing relationships or even uh, collectives or coalitions which is everything seems to be out like all the outward facing stuff seems to be positive instead of exploring the interpersonal dynamics or group dynamics and how what techniques have worked and what haven't and why like that type of organizational design or management analysis hasn't I don't think has happened at a wide scale in movement building mm. I think we both need to go to bed. We do. So I'm gonna, I think like this is a really good spot mm -hmm. for us to wrap on because yeah. like, like I missed you a I lot. And that was like, I wonder if people think, do Sheila and Nina only talk like that for the podcast? It's like, no, we actually, no, no, no. this is, Just this talk. is how we like, the microphone wasn't on. This is how we would be talking to each other still. Okay. With that, <laughs> um, I'm going to say good night and. Oh, as always, lovely to see your face. Ah, so good. So good. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us this episode. In the show notes, we'll have a few links to some of the resources that Sheila and I both mentioned. You can find the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Omira Radio, and our website is omiraradiohour.com. We're available on Stitcher and iTunes, so if you like us a lot, please swing by and give us a review. You can find Sheila on Twitter at Queen of Blah, and you can find me, Nina, at Only Nina. Our intro music is by Nuclea, and original music in this episode is by Michael Dwan Singh. You can find him on Instagram at Tapewala. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>